And if you would turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3. And as you turn there, would you stand with me this morning as we read the gospel together? Matthew 3, beginning in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, or do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So as we mentioned earlier, we are now in this season of Epiphany. And as we move forward this morning, we look at the baptism of Jesus, which is a critical moment in the story of Jesus. It is the initiation of his ministry, his public ministry. It's also this moment of sudden discovery for the people who are surrounding them at the Jordan River at that point in time. And, and maybe you've had this same kind of moment in your own life at some point, this moment where you've really kind of like been awakened to who Jesus is, this moment where you've really kind of discovered who Jesus is. Hopefully that's happened for you. It isn't just this intellectual thing, right? It's not just this thing where I, I, I know the story of Jesus or I know the story of the gospel, but you've had this moment where it's like the veil has been removed and you really see Jesus for who he really is. Today, as we reflect on the baptism of Jesus, which in my opinion, out of all the strange and hard to understand things that we find in the gospel, this is one of the weirder moments in the story of Jesus. Um, as, we, as we reflect on this today, I, I think we find that this scene is strange because we most often think of baptism as, as something that primarily relates to sin. That baptism is all about the fact that our sins have been like washed away by the blood of Jesus. That baptism is all about our repentance or our turning from sin. And, and those things are absolutely true. Even John said that the baptism that he gave was a baptism for the repentance of sin. Even though all of those things are true, Jesus had nothing to repent of, right? Jesus was sinless. So why in the world would he need to be baptized? Before we talk about that, though, let's just talk about baptism for a second, because baptism in itself is kind of a strange thing. When, when you think about all of the things that the church is kind of called to do publicly as like a public witness 
of our faith, most of those things are in some ways extensions of our normal everyday life. So, for example, one of the things that the church is called to do publicly together is the church is called to break bread together. We do that in a variety of ways. Um, we do that through the table. Uh, we do that in our homes. We do that as we come together in sharing meals. Um, and that's just an extension of what we're doing anyway. All of us eat. It's a part of our daily lives. We all eat together with other people. We eat with family and friends. You don't have to be a Christ follower to enjoy a great meal with other people. In the church, however, because of what Jesus has done, that simple daily routine is given even greater significance and purpose. So we're coming around the table of Christ each week. We're sharing in this ultimate meal as we celebrate communion. And, and, and as we sit down and dine with each other, we're hopefully pointing to the fact that one day we will all sit at the Lord's table in his ultimate fulfilled kingdom as children of God. So when we come together, we aren't sharing a meal even in the way that people who don't know Christ share a meal. It's not just about the meal. It's about the significance of what is and what is to come, what Jesus has done. Baptism, however, doesn't have like as obvious of an analog in our daily life. Um, about the closest thing that I can kind of come up with is when maybe you bathe your children. Um, it's, it's this moment where you're doing something that they can't do themselves, right? They, they can't, especially when they're really, really little, they can't clean themselves, right? No matter how hard they try, all they can do is kind of flail around and splash around in the water. It, it takes like a loving mother or father to do the work of cleansing for a young child. But where does baptism come from? After all, before Jesus even begins his public ministry, John, John the Baptist is out there baptizing people. He's out there dunking people in the Jordan. Um, Baptism is like this thoroughly Jewish practice. Um, it goes all the way back to the Pentateuch, to the laws of ritual uncleanness and ritual cleanness. For example, if you were an observant Jew and you came into contact with a dead body, according to the law of Moses, you would have been rendered unclean because of your contact with the dead body. So how are you made quote unquote clean again? Well, the prescription was uh, washings. It was actual cleansing. And, and obviously this wasn't just like superstitious stuff, nor was it simply about you, the individual. The washings had like practical health implications for you and the community. If you've been in contact with a dead body, yeah, like if you have touched something that is deceased, there is great potential that you could bring disease back into the whole community. You may not know the name Ingaz or Ignaz, rather, this is a strange name, Ignaz Semmelweis, uh, but he was a Hungarian doctor and he's the guy who discovered that if doctors would simply wash their hands before medical procedures, that the instances of mortality in children were far lower. Um, and he was derided as like a kook, like no one believed that this was the case, even though he had proven in studies that instances of death in children were far lower if people would just wash their hands. He had no like explanation for why that was the case. Right. And so no one believed him at first. It wasn't actually years later. And, and Louis Pasteur um, discovered germs. 
and discovered that there were like microorganisms that if you would just wash your hands, your hands would be cleaned and there was less chance of actually transferring microorganisms to another person, that it actually became common practice that people would wash their hands in medical settings. So in much the same way, long before any of those guys ever came around, in early Jewish communities, people were unclean if they came into contact with something unclean, and they then had to stay outside the camp, they had to wash themselves in this prescribed way before they could ever enter back into the community. And over time, these cleansing rituals became a part of the process that somebody had to go through in order to be converted to Judaism. So if you were a Gentile who was converted, you would go through many of the same ritual cleansing. So baptism took on the nature of being a sort of initiation rite, as a sort of way of entering the community, of joining the family. John the Baptist, to some extent, had this in mind when he said that his baptism was about repentance. His baptism wasn't about physical hygiene. Right? His baptism wasn't about keeping disease out of the community. His baptism um, was about a person initiating a new way of life. Right? It was about a person turning from their sin and turning to God and saying, I want to leave that part of me behind me. Right? I want to step into this new community, this new situation. Jesus comes along and it says that John would have prevented him from being baptism, saying, Jesus, like, you don't, what are you doing? Like, you don't need this. I, I need to be baptized by you. You don't have sin to turn from. But, but yeah, I think that Jesus is doing three significant things in his baptism. First of all, he is initiating his messianic ministry. Secondly, he is identifying with the people whom he has come to save. And third, he is pointing the way into a new community. So if baptism is an, an initiation rite, then Jesus is certainly pressing play on his ministry as Messiah. This is the moment where it really kind of all begins for him. He says to John, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. I think that's like a key statement in the middle of all of this. That Jesus wasn't doing this arbitrarily. This wasn't a whim. That Jesus is doing this intentionally because for some reason it was fitting to fulfill all righteousness. This was somehow essential for Jesus to fulfill all that he had come to do. You know, there's all of this death and life imagery in baptism. If you've ever been to a baptism, I assume everybody here has been to a baptism at some point. You know that there is often said, as somebody's being baptized, something like you are being buried with Christ in baptism and you're being raised to newness of life. And this is actually a distillation of the words of Paul in Romans 6. Here's what Paul says. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too 
might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So, man, there's a lot of depth there. We could spend a lot of time unpacking that. This text, I think, though, is key to our understanding of baptism. And we'll dig into it a bit more uh, in, in just a moment. But what I want us to see is that in the moment that Jesus comes to be baptized by John, Jesus is pointing the way for us. He's pointing the way for us into the future, into this new community that he is establishing. Jesus' baptism, in many ways, is the first step towards the cross, right? His baptism, in many ways, is the first step towards the cross. In his baptism, Jesus is foreshadowing everything that is to come. Think of everything Paul just said. Often when we think about baptism, I think we maybe primarily focus on the newness of life part of it, right? But if we take Paul at his word, what Paul is saying was the death portion of baptism is just as important as the life portion of baptism, right? Both of these things work in conjunction with each other. By taking this step, Jesus is giving us a glimpse of what is to come in and through his life and ministry. And he's calling us to do the same thing. You know, some people would say, well, you know, Jesus did all of these things so that I don't have to. Like Jesus suffered all of these things so that I don't have to. And, and yet, that's not really Paul's theology here. True, you may not have to go to a cross and die, but yet Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. So even if you don't physically die for Christ, there still, there still should be a death that takes place within you. And even still, Jesus told his followers, hey, some of you are going to be killed. Right? You're going to be turned over to the courts. Some of you will be killed. This was true for Paul as well. But here's the deal. Long before Paul was physically martyred, he had already died. Like the old Paul had already died. And in his language, he's saying, I've basically been nailed to the cross too. Like Paul, like the me that lives in this world, the me that is sinful, that me is gone. And he uses all of this language about the old man and the new man. I've cast off the old man. I've taken on the new man who is Christ. So Paul's death, his actual physical death, was nothing. The real death had happened long before. And it was that real death that had produced his real life. Real life eternal. So if you say, well, Jesus has done all of this for me so that I don't have to sacrifice anything or so that I don't have to die on some level, then you're just simply wrong. This is why Paul says, are we to continue in sin so that God's grace might abound to us? By no means, absolutely not. 
how can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Diedrich Bonhoeffer famously said, when Christ calls a man, he calls him or he bids him come and die. Is that the step that you've taken? Is that how you have followed Jesus? Has it been this death of me, this death of the old man or woman, and this taking on of the new? Or has it simply been, I now participate in some religious activities, whereas before I didn't? Those two things are not the same. And while in most of our churches, the life that comes in the wake of baptism, as we've said, is maybe predominantly and rightly emphasized, I think we're doing people a great disservice if we don't also emphasize the death that comes in baptism. This is what I mean when I say that Jesus in baptism was seeking to identify with those whom he had come to save. People were coming out in droves. To hear John preach, they were coming out in droves to be baptized by John. It says they were coming from Jerusalem. They were coming from all like the wilderness in Judea. They were coming out into the middle of nowhere to see him and to hear him. They wanted to follow God. They wanted to turn from their sins. And they were recognizing that there was something bigger than themselves. The hope was not necessarily within their person. I think our culture today would tell you that hope is actually within you. That you've got to find the hope that is within you. You have to connect with who you are. You need to get in touch with yourself. You need to go, quote unquote, find yourself. It's this kind of like eat, pray, love nonsense that, that so many people are buying into. It, and it's actually rooted in something that is not new at all. It's something that's actually very old. It's called Gnosticism. It was one of the earliest church heresies. And Gnosticism was all about this idea that if you were somehow going to attain to some kind of eternal life, then you had to first attain some kind of special spiritual knowledge that no one else had. The Greek word, the root word of the word Gnostic or Gnosticism is the word Gnosis. Um, which simply means knowledge. And so there was this idea that, some, that you could find this knowledge somehow, and that some people had it and other people didn't have it. And the same thing's going on today. If you want to attain to the kind of life that you want, then there is this special knowledge that is somehow hidden deep inside of you. You're the only one who can find it. The real you is somehow hidden inside of you. And that if you do actually find the real you, that you're going to be finally happy, that your problems are going to be behind you when you acquire this special knowledge. In many ways, it's like a form of self-worship. Right? Rather than pursuing Christ, I'm actually pursuing myself, which is a great excuse for me being completely self-centered and unloving towards others. Listen, <laughs> there is no real you other than the one that you see in the mirror. 
And the reality is, the real you sucks. The real me sucks. That, that's the whole point here. It's not that you just haven't had enough downtime or the right international trip to find the real you, right? The real you is flawed. The real you is inherently sinful. The real you is the source of a lot of the problems and unhappiness in your life. It is the sin that you were born with. Your hope is not inside of you. It's not hidden in there somewhere. The people who were coming to John for baptism realized this. It's not that I need more of me. It's that I need to not be me anymore. It's that I need to let go of the old man and take on the new man. So Jesus identifies with those he had come to save. But he in baptism, he's also pointing the way forward for us. He's also showing us the doorway. Following Jesus in baptism isn't simply about you. It's also about, it isn't just about you turning from sin or being cleansed from sin. It's also about the whole community. And in the same way that the Jewish rituals were about the whole community, baptism is the doorway into the new Christ-centered community. It's the initiation rite. You maybe heard it said that baptism is like this outward symbol of an inward reality. That it's this like symbolic manifestation of what Christ has done in you. That you have been cleansed from your sin. And, and that's true, but it's not the whole truth either. Because baptism should also be this outward symbol of an outward reality. Right? That baptism isn't just something deep and spiritual that's happened inside of you. And the only way we see it is if you were laid down into water and brought back up again. Right? No, we should also be able to see it manifest in your life. Right, if the inward reality is that you have been cleansed from your sin, and the old man has died, and the new man in Christ has been born within you, then that's not something that should be hidden on the outside, right? Like, we should be able to see that. So baptism is this outward symbol of both an inward and an outward reality. Because what is happening inside should be coming to the surface outside, ideally. If the inward change that Jesus has effected isn't producing any outward change, then I would question whether or not there's actually been any inward change. As Paul said, how can we who died to sin still live in it? You know, historically, there's two primary sacraments in the life of the church, communion and baptism. I grew up in the Baptist church where those things were called ordinances. And, and yet I think the word sacrament should be the preferred term. That word sacrament points to the fact that God is in fact doing something in the middle of all of this. As we come to his table, as we go down into the water and come out, of get, uh, out again, that there's, there's some kind of grace that he is imparting to us through these actions. This isn't just some lifeless rule that he threw out there. It isn't just some mechanical function of the church. When we come to the Lord's table, like there's something happening. I can't fully explain it. Like I think there's, there's deep mystery involved with what the Lord is doing. Except to say that the grace that I experience by being called to follow Christ in baptism or the fact that I've been invited to his table is a grace that is truly like divine in nature.
It doesn't come from me. It doesn't come from you. It comes from him. So for many people, these are things that bring life. Like just coming to the communion table every week is like this refreshing, life-giving experience. Because it's not just some wine and some bread. It's because the Spirit of God is using these moments to point us towards Christ. And we could go on and on with this text. I, I think the implications of the Spirit of God descending on Jesus like a dove are huge. You relate that to the story of Pentecost and the tongues of fire that descend on the apostles, the booming voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. To suffice it to say, this was not like a normal baptism in any way, shape, or form. You've never been to a baptism like this. It was an epiphany, right? It was a discovery. It was this moment of like divine understanding, like, oh my gosh. This is who this is. Let me leave you with this thought this morning. As someone who has hopefully been initiated into this new Christ-centered community through baptism, you have been commissioned by Jesus. You know the Great Commission, right? To go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. What's a part of that? Baptizing them. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the same thing that God sent John the Baptist to do, he has now sent you to do. Not just clergy. Not just like professional Christians. But any who would call himself or herself a disciple of Jesus. You have been sent with the gospel to make disciples of all nations. We hear that word nations and we think actual physical places, but a better rendering is probably the word ethnicities. All peoples. It's not just about going to different places. It's about, it's about the fact that the gospel is for everybody. The gospel is not just for Jews, right? The gospel isn't just for white people, right? As, as the Europeans might have thought as they came and forced it on other people in colonialism. Gospel is for everyone, and, and you, if these things have truly happened in your life, right? If you've gone from death to life, if you have died with Christ and been raised with Christ, then you also have been filled with his Holy Spirit, and you've been empowered with his gospel to go and make disciples in your everyday life, in the places where you are. It's not something just for special people. It's not something you reserve for certain folks. It is something that is for everybody. And you are sent with that holy and sacred message to go and share the good news of your baptism with the world and to initiate others into the community of Christ through baptism, the community of those who have died and who now, as a result, live. That is who we are. And it's what we aspire to be as well. Let's pray this morning. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the recognition that the baptism that you give us is not simply one that is of water. 
that we simply haven't been washed physically, but yet, Father, you have cleansed us from the inside out. And you have imparted your righteousness to us. And God, we thank you. And we thank you also for this new Christ-centered community that you have welcomed us in, into, this community where we are your children. Not sinners separated from you, not stepchildren, but adopted sons and daughters who you also deeply love. And we thank you this morning, Father, that because of the sacrifice of Jesus and because his righteousness is given to us and your forgiveness is given to us, that somehow, despite our great sin, you can also look at us and not only call us your children, but also say that you are well pleased by us. Father, that is truly a grace that we don't deserve. And it's a grace that we see both in baptism and in communion. Father, thank you for the truth of your word this morning. May it penetrate our hearts. May it move us to action. That we wouldn't be puffed up in any way, but Father, that we would be humble, seeking to live and declare your gospel in our daily lives. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.